Published in 2020, Friendly Fire, How Israel Became Its Own Worst Enemy and the Hope for Its Future, by Ami Ayalon, offers valuable insights for making sense of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and for understanding what Israel should and shouldn't be doing to win this ongoing, quote, war with Hamas. I'm excited to share this book with you because talking about the book allows me to talk about the conflict, to talk about the world of Zionism I grew up in. Amiyai alone is an Israeli politician, a war hero. He's a recipient of Israel's highest military decoration. It's the extremely exclusive Medal of Valor that was last awarded in 1975. Uh, and most crucially, most importantly, you might say, he is a former head of the Shin Bet. The Shin Bet is like a combination of America's CIA and FBI. Uh, like the CIA, unlike the FBI, the Shin Bet is not part of Israel's Ministry of Defense or military bureaucracy. The Shin Bet stands alone, it's autonomous, with basically no bureaucratic oversight, and the head of the Shin Bet reports directly to the Prime Minister of Israel. Like the CIA, the Shin Bet is tasked with gathering foreign intelligence, and like the FBI, the Shin Bet is responsible for domestic security and monitoring terrorist threats, detaining suspects, and carrying out arrests. And so in this short set of videos, um, I want to share excerpts from the book. I want to share pieces of Ayalon's biography, how he grew up, what he believed as a child, and how his life experiences allowed him to expand his perspective and to question some of his earlier assumptions about the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think Ayalon's evolution, intellectually, politically, mirrors some of my own experiences in life. Um, and I think parts of this book are really, really directly applicable to the current situation in Israel. Um, and I hope to highlight some of those parts that are just directly relevant to the political questions facing Israel today. The book begins with Ayalon talking about his parents and their generation. They immigrated illegally to Palestine from Romania in the 1930s. His parents fought difficult circumstances, uh, the resident Arab population, in an attempt to establish a socialist settlement in this land. And growing up in this world, I alone was naturally eager to continue in this tradition of settling the land of Israel, of defending Israel's uh, sovereignty in the land. And he was eager, of course, to join the Israeli army. Flotilla 13 is Israel's elite Navy commando unit. It's similar to the U.S.'s Navy SEALs. Uh, I alone writes, quote, the minute I turned 18, I signed up for Flotilla 13. Because I was an only child, joining any of the operational units, in particular Flotilla 13, required both parents' agreement. Abba, expecting no less from his son, had no objections. Had he not risked his own life smuggling refugees and fighting Iraqis during the siege of Kibbutz Gesher in the War of Independence? After all, establishing a kibbutz within range of trigger-happy Syrians was hardly a matter for the meek. The problem was with Ima. She accepted, with grim fatalism, that I had to serve our country. Where she drew the line was with the sea commandos. Had she not sacrificed enough already? She left the green Carpathian Mountains for a mosquito-infested swamp, gave up her jewelry to buy a tractor for our kibbutz, and worst of all, accepted, against her very nature, that in our socialist system, I slept in the children's dorm as if I belonged to the collective and not to her. Now, in 1963, she refused to permit that her only son would risk his life on daredevil missions, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. 
How can you even ask me to sign this? She said, pushing the page back in my direction. Ima cared far more about family, children, theater, and music than she ever did about socialism. She sacrificed almost everything because she fell in love with an ideologue. She wasn't going to sacrifice her only son. We stood in the concrete bungalow, sweat pouring from her furrowed brow in the pitiless heat. I took no pleasure in hurting her, but I'd been raised on glorious tales of the Maccabees and the Palmach, and seeking permission for my mother felt degrading. It was my life, and if I wanted to dive under a ship to attach a limpet mine or penetrate enemy territory to photograph a communications tower, that was my affair, not hers. After failing to bring her around, I resorted to an ultimatum I knew would work. Ima began the cruelest line ever to cross my lips. If I'm on a mission, yes, there's a chance I'll be killed. But if I can't join Flotilla 13 because of you, there's a 100% certainty you will not see me again. With tears welling up in her eyes, she signed the form. End quote. What's amazing here is that this memoir is part of a genre of Zionistic writing and Zionistic storytelling that I grew up on and I loved as a child. One of the ways in which the Zionist, pro-Israel, militaristic ideology perpetuates itself is that there's this tradition of uh, war heroes and heroes from war telling their stories and telling their, their battles to the next generation in a romanticized kind of way. And to some extent, this book follows in that tradition. I feel like I grew up on these stories. You know, in my school experience, soldiers would come to us and, and tell us stories like this. Um, when I was very young, my parents let me watch black and white documentaries about the Six-Day War and Israel's Yom Kippur War. And there were picture books and non-picture books around the house about Israeli history. And so chapter four in Ayalon's memoir, the chapter is titled The Silent Ones, uh, describes some of these epic tales of what it's like being in this elite unit and going on these extremely dangerous missions. So talking about his intense training in Flotilla 13, quote, to test our metal, we'd wait for perfect storms. Those cold fronts that howl down from the far north, bring blizzards to the Golan and driving rain to the coast. In the dead of night, we'd maneuver dinghies through 10-foot waves and plunge into the water off the coast of Atlit with 60-pound packs on our backs. It wasn't the cold or the weight of our packs, however, that broke the most recruits. It was the radical isolation of swimming for hours through the deep waters of the bay so dark you could barely see the compass and the depth gauge to navigate your way. We felt like blindfolded men pitched into a whirlpool. They called us the silent ones because deep underwater divers can't hear a thing. This was survival of the fittest and some of our modern day Samsons lasted only half an hour. Later in the same chapter, he describes his experience serving in the Green Island Raid against an Egyptian radar unit located on the Gulf of Suez. And he describes the preparation for the operation and the training that they did and the way in which they had a mock version of the fortress that they were trying to infiltrate where they practiced. And he writes right before the, they were about to embark, quote, I can still hear the parting words from the chief of staff, General Chaim Barlev, second in command only to our eye-patched minister of defense, Moshe Dayan, as he wished us luck on our mission. He was seated in a folding chair the red glow of his cigar wedged between the middle and index fingers of his left hand. Guys, he began, smoke corkscrewing up from his lips. If you see that there's fierce resistance, 
If people start getting wounded, just retreat. He picked tobacco off of his tongue. This is not the time for victory any price, he concluded, before rising abruptly, heading for the exit. What the hell? I mumbled under my breath. Did he really just say, not at any price? Did the general who was sending us on this either us or them operation truly not realize that once we opened fire there would be no turning back? If there were still Egyptians alive when we tried to leave the island from the roof they would easily pick us off. Did he even understand the mission he was sending us on? End quote. And then he continues that after the meeting was over and he's getting ready to embark with his with his friends on the mission, he says, quote, I called to Chaim, who was to be my human ladder, enabling me to summit the roof of the fortress, and to Zalman Rat, another friend from Kibbutz Afakim in the Jordan Valley, who was to fight alongside me. Listen up, I said. Forget about Lieutenant General Barlev. There's nowhere to go. It's us or them. Chaim flashed a wry grin as if to say, let's make it them. Skipping ahead a bit, quote, Unit 269 watched as we looped the straps to our heavy packs around our shoulders and slid silently, our combat diving tanks first, into the dark, warm waters of the Red Sea. The currents were stronger than we anticipated, and to avoid them, we descended to the unplanned depth of 65 feet, perilous for divers using closed-circuit rebreathers, heavy as anchors. With only a small illuminated compass and our Lieutenant Dove Barr's hand signals leading us through the pitch-black waters, we inched closer to the island, one painful stroke at a time. Nearing our target, we swam back to the surface where we could just make out the Black Colossus looming a hundred yards ahead. We were dangerously behind schedule. It was clear that the chances of reaching the island by 1.30 a.m., the point at which orders were to abandon the operation, were nil. I recall the way the light from the half-moon showed exhaustion on the others' faces. Dove's eyebrows arched in a menacing pyramid, nostrils pinched and determined. I know there are some of you who think we will go back if we don't reach the island in time. No fucking delay will keep us from fighting tonight. We've only one direction in front of us, he said, pointing to the ink-black waters. Kadima, forward, even if we reach the island in the morning. End quote. The whole chapter is uh, an epic adrenaline rush. He describes in incredible detail what it's like being on this kind of operation. And I just want to conclude by reading the final paragraphs of uh, his the operation, this firefight this mission to destroy a radar outpost uh, in Egyptian territory. Um, at this point, they've, they've been engaging the enemy for some time, and they're uh, basically fighting until they're going to be rescued. When they arrived at this uh, location, Ami had to scale a wall, eight-foot wall, with the help of his friend, climbing onto his shoulders, and in the process, he lost his shoe. So he ends up fighting the rest of this operation barefoot. Here are the final paragraphs of this chapter. Quote, to cover their progress, I threw one of my few dry smoke grenades. Now the Egyptians, manning machine gun nests, couldn't see my friends sprint past them, nor could they see me, still barefoot, racing over hot casements and spraying their nests with bullets. The rubble shredded the bottom of my feet, but adrenaline numbed the pain. Most of us frogmen were finally on the roof, fighting the Egyptians in a fierce face-to-face shootout, like in a saloon in the Old West. Dove sent up another green flare, signaling to the 269 commandos to get to the island as fast as their outboard engines could carry them. Where the hell were they? If the 269 didn't show up soon, I thought to myself, we'd run out of ammo and the enemy would regroup before we could escape. 
Let's move, I said to Zali, pointing with my gun to the next machine gun nest. With Zali following me, gripping his blood-smeared weapon, we raced pell-mell at the machine gunners, dodging and weaving, banging in my final magazine. I blasted away with my head exposed above sandbags. We advanced to the 85mm anti-aircraft position. It was then that I noticed the Unit 269 reinforcements finally filing onto the roof. With my AK-47, I motioned for them to join us. All of a sudden, it was as if a mist surrounded me. The din of battle disappeared and an uncanny calm settled over me. Just as with the wound to my forehead and the lacerations on my feet, I felt no pain as shrapnel passed through the major artery in my neck. In cerebral shock, I swooned and tumbled unconscious to the ground. I'm still alive, I thought a minute or two later. I blinked away the dust and opened my eyes, only to see that I was covered in the blood spilling from my neck. I heard retching, louder, and all these years later, much more memorable than the roar of cannon fire. On my back and on the verge of another blackout, I noticed Zali firing at the enemy with his three remaining fingers. I looked around, but I couldn't figure out who was retching. Then it dawned on me. A month earlier, during a sabotage operation against a coastal Egyptian radar station in Abidia, I had encountered Egyptian fire while breaking through coils of barbed wire. From close range, I'd fired and two men fell. The targets nameless and faceless were eliminated. Or so I'd believed until one of the men began retching as if choking on blood. I'd shot again, and not just once or twice, I'd emptied, a, I'd emptied a magazine until the terrible groaning ceased. I finally realized that I was the one who was dying. So is this what it's like, I asked myself? No goodbyes, no final words, my life over before the age of 25? Skipping a few paragraphs to the part where he's finally uh, rescued and able uh, to be seen by the, the unit's physician. Quote, what I recall from my half-conscious state was the way our unit's physician, Dr. Slavin, inserted a needle into my arm for the IV while soldiers carried my friends into the Zodiac. Friends who seemed to be in even worse shape than I was. One soldier landed with a thump next to me. He wasn't moving. Had he passed out? Chaim too was motionless, though I could feel the warmth of his body. Wait, I slurred to the doctor. I didn't understand why he was patching me up when others clearly needed his help more. Slavin, nodding, turned his attention to my neck, muttering to himself. The bastards, he said, referring to the military brass who'd sent us. What a goddamn waste. End quote. And so that's the end of this first section um, about Ami Ayalon's military career. And this is by no means the end of his military career. Quite the contrary. It's just the beginning. Uh, he went on to become the commander of Flotilla 13, and he would become uh, decorated for his service and his many daring operations that he would carry out. Um, but in the next video, I think we are going to look at Ami Ayalon's tenure in the Shin Bet and what he tells us about the Shin Bet, the way it operates, um, and the way it that experience transformed him. Um, and also, we will talk about his testimony uh, in the 2012 documentary, the acclaimed documentary by Dror Moret called The Gatekeepers. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk about his criticisms of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, how he thinks about the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and his uh, perspectives on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the history of the conflict, and his peace activism, and his message that is, I think, immediate and relevant uh, right now for how Israel should and shouldn't be conducting uh, war against Hamas. Um, I hope you will join me in this uh, little project. Thank you for watching.